You're listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more information about the house and our events on our website. Good evening, everyone. My name is Ossi Lappegolan, and I work with the artistic program here at the House of Literature. And the title of tonight's event, The Womanly Face of War, is inspired by the title of Svetlana Alexievich's book, in which she gives voice to the women soldiers of the Red Army during the Second World War. And as we learn from these women, the role of women in war tends to be ignored or silenced. War is something masculine, Maasa Mengiste has said. And I think in the work of tonight's guests, I see a connection to Alexievich's project, namely to give voice to the stories, and particularly those of women, from some of the darkest points in history. Maasa Mengiste was born in Ethiopia, and Ethiopian history is a starting point for both of her critically acclaimed novels, Beneath the Lion's Gaze and The Shadow King. In the latter, which I'm happy to say will be published in Norwegian translation next year, she takes us through the dramatic story of the Italo-Ethiopian War. With an innovative style and in a lyrical language, Mengiste explores characters on both sides of the conflict and from different stratas of society, from King Haile Selassie himself to a simple servant girl. And to talk with Mengiste on stage, we're thrilled to have the Finnish-Estonian Sophie Oksanen here. She's a novelist, a playwright, and an essayist. And like Mengiste, she has explored the dark and violent history of her home country and region through her fiction, notably in novels such as Stalin's Cows and Perch. And her latest novel, Dog Park, looks at the darkest side of surrogacy from a Ukrainian fertility facility. And today, however, most of us think of vastly different things when we hear the word Ukraine. And reading Mengistus' The Shadow King, with news coming in from the war in Ukraine and the war in Tigray in Ethiopia, there is an eerie sense of history repeating itself. So how can literature help us understand the past as well as the times that we live in? Please join me in welcoming Maasa Mengiste and Sophie Oksanen. Hello, everybody. I am so super thrilled to be here with Maza and, of course, with you, with live audience and with the book Shadow King. It was definitely one of my bookish highlights for a long time. I read it this summer. At the same time, I was following uh, the news from Ukraine, which made uh, the exp- reading experience um, actually very weird um, because the novel set in Ethiopia, Ita- Mussolini's Italian army trying to conquest uh, Ethiopia in 1945. Uh, and Maybe the experience was even more tense because the novel is is written in present tense. Uh, So it felt like this is happening right now. Now, of course, if I had read the novel before uh, the large-scale invasion um, uh, that started in February in Ukraine, then I would have probably felt... um, felt 
not exactly the same way, but maybe in certain aspects the same way, because then I would have thought about 40s and the Second World War occupation of Baltic states, and there were so many similarities, but we'll get back to them later on. Now, the novel, as I said, is set in 1945 during Mussolini's invasion of Ethiopia in his attempt to colonize uh, the country. And it tells the story of this war on both sides of the battlefield. Um, Italian side and then Ethiopian side. But the main characters, or main character is Hirut, a servant to a noble woman, Aster. So indeed, women are very much on the focus in the novel. Um, but the book, however, starts in 1974, again, when Ethiopia is uh, on a very uh, unstable situation uh, due to revolution. And then we go back to 1945 and, and most of the novel stays in 40s and, and 30s. Um, but now I want to start with... Uh, uh, with this um, meaning, uh, what uh, or the meaning of winning Italians? Mm -hmm. You know, Mussolini's army was actually the most modern army at the time, and Ethiopians had only spears and old-fashioned uh, guns. Mm -hmm. So, what does this mean to the national identity for Ethiopians? This was a story that I I heard growing up again and again, uh, the story of Ethiopian men who rose up against a technologically modern, advanced um, Italian military in Italy at that time, like you said, was, I think, the most modern uh, in Europe. Um, it had practiced warfare and advanced their warfare capabilities in Libya. Uh, through a pacification campaign that was absolutely brutal. Uh, so they knew exactly what to do. And they were determined not to lose Ethiopia in 1935. Forty years earlier, they had attempted to colonize it and had lost. And Mussolini said, I will take Ethiopia with or without Ethiopians. So this was the way that it was set up. And the stories I heard were of men in my neighborhood, men in my family who rose up with spears, with rifles that had often only been used for livestock. Those rifles that were first used 40 years ago in the first encounter with Italy, those are really all the weapons that most Ethiopians had. If they had guns, they were lucky. They did not have ammunition. The women had to make bullets. Um, and often people were given one or two bullets, and that was it, to go into battle. Somehow, after five years, Ethiopia won. And it's logically impossible. As a child hearing this, as a child going to the United States, living in a town where no one understood Africa, no one knew Ethiopia, no one knew what to do with a little black girl 
in their school, um, the ridicule and the racism was pretty intense. Uh, I would keep thinking about this history and I would think about the way that even people who were not supposed to win could survive. Uh, and so that those stories sustained me. Um, and that win, I mean, it, it defined a kind of Ethiopian identity. I don't, I like to joke that on any occasion, it could be a wedding, it could be a, a baby christening, somebody will say, we beat those Italians. You know? <laughs> and, and everybody else starts saying, yes. So it, it keeps talk, getting talked about. Um, but of course, once I started the research, which we can go into, I realized that so much of what I heard, which was quite, it helped me as a, as a child, uh, was a kind of myth, a kind of legend. It didn't really tell me about war. It didn't tell me about what actually happened, uh, but it did help me um, when I was growing up. And that became the inspiration for writing it. Um, this is um, this is exactly the same thing with Finns and Estonians as well. Uh, Finns beating Soviet Union and the the myths related to winter war is something we uh, it's it's still a living memory. Uh, my grandfather was a war veteran himself, and 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 now Ukrainians know probably the history of winter war better than we do now. Uh, but also for Estonians because the resistance movement during the Soviet occupation and the Forest Brothers uh, was also uh, something that really um, really kept the national identity alive mm -hmm. under, under the uh, occupation. Uh, so um, that no matter what happens, we don't give up yes. simply. So these are really, and, and from Norwegians, I, I, I don't know what is the most important uh, national identity story, but I mean, um, <clears throat> a nation that has a strong national identity story survives always, mm -hmm. no, matter, no matter what happens. Um, the novel starts with the uh, main character, Hirut, saying that she doesn't want to remember. But from one of your uh, interviews, um, I read that you wanted to remember everything when you left, left Ethiopia. You needed to remember everything. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think that that might have affected uh, the fact that you became an author? Hmm. That's a good question, Sophie. No one's asked me that. Um, well, I am I, super happy about that because I, I'm, I'm pretty I sure that all the questions in the world have been asked uh, from you. But I was uh, thinking that, no. you know, the because that meant that you had to, because you, you knew that if you don't remember, then no one can remember yes, for you. Absolutely. And I think um, I remembered... I left Ethiopia when I was quite young. I left in the early days of the revolution when a military dictatorship um, came in. And uh, I, remember, I remember more than the adults in my family. Even though I was three, four, five years old, there was something that happened when I went to the United States where 
everything that happened in Ethiopia froze and I kept it and I traveled with it through my American life so that I could, I knew exactly certain events um, in the revolution because they were happening in my neighborhood. There were, some of the resistance was in that neighborhood. I remembered things that my family would say, how do you remember this? Um, and so I think that the, this idea of memory uh, has, has always fascinated me. Um, I've often wondered if imagination, creativity that we use as writers and as artists is not in fact drawing from memories that we don't even know or realize that we have. Um, one of, like, for example, um, Hirut in my novel is a, a young girl who is an orphan. Her father, as he is dying, gives her a rifle. And it is this rifle that the nobleman Kidane and his wife Aster, that she, the people she works for, take it away from her because Ethiopia needs guns. And what does a girl need a gun for? Um, she fought for that gun throughout the book. Um, her mother's name is Gate. I did not know until the book was finished and I was turning, turning it, the final draft in to, um, to my editor that my great-grandmother was involved in the war. She had fought her father for that gun. Her name was Gate A. And so there were these eerie similarities that kept coming up in the book and made me think about um, where does imagination come from? What is it that we draw from, even if we're not consciously aware? Our brain is constantly working on different levels that we're not often um, cognizant, aware of. So uh, memory has been really, the, this idea of it has been fascinating. Um, Simonides, which is something that I, I write about in the novel, um, Emperor Haile Selassie was quite known for his memory. Uh, he was able to govern by pitting different diplomats, different rulers against each other because he could remember what somebody said five or six or seven years ago and then drop that information and suddenly there's tension and he can govern by dividing. And this was something he always did. Um, I realized, uh, I discovered that he had been trained by Jesuits. And the Jesuit form of um, instruction, when they teach royal children, um, they say that memory is the territory of the privileged. That all people, all children that they taught that were royal children needed to exercise their memory because through memory they could rule. And they used the Simonides method, which was a method that, um, it, it was a, a bit, uh, how do I describe it? I have tried to do it and failed miserably. Um, but you imagine a palace and you imagine different rooms in that palace. 
And when you need to remember something, you put the details in certain rooms and then you call it up. I'm not exactly um, explaining it well, but it's, it's in the book and Cicero also writes about it. Um, and Haile Selassie did this, but memory was supposed to be only for royalty. Memory was supposed to be used to maintain power. Memory was supposed to be a form of, it's a weapon. Uh, and that made it very fascinating for me. And uh, this, which is why that first line begins with memory also. That was extremely fascinating to hear, you know, uh, one of the most famous Soviet dissidents, Vladimir Bukovsky, who was detained and imprisoned many, many times. And um, he has written a book, which I think the title is um, To Build a Castle. And his tip for all the dissidents and all the prison, uh, political prisoners is that, you know, you have to use your imagination. And he was building a castle in his head. That's what it is. That's yeah. It is. So I'm pretty sure that he wasn't educated by Jesuits, but but in it's a way a, that was that. Uh, and and I still wonder how he kept his sanity through all those years imprisonment and and in a very uh, difficult conditions. Mm -hmm. But that is exactly why. Yeah. To build a castle. That is. It's inter It's yeah. it's that same. It's the same image that. That that's that's the that's the image. It's the castle. It's a palace. It's a room. It's a home with many rooms, many doors, many windows. Um, and I believe even in England, the Tudors, the families. This is how they they were trained to remember. Um, yeah, and it's interesting to think about uh, memory as a weapon to maintain power, uh, because if you can control the collective memory of a nation you can control a narrative and you can dictate who's in and who's out and the kind of future that can be developed. And I think we're seeing that now in the United States and everywhere else where authoritarianism is growing. Uh, definitely. And, and Russia is exactly trying to... Actually, uh, my favorite definition for uh, Putin's Russia is uh, military memocracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because it's about controlling the memory yes. and the controlling memory of the past. Um, and um, in the novel, um, you are also, also using oral tradition. Mm -hmm. And I think that has also affected your uh, writing as, as well. And, uh, and seeing tradition as well. And you have a chorus in the novel. So maybe you want to you wanna talk about all, all of this and, <laughs> and also how it's connected to Ethiopian culture. Yes. Uh, I wanted to construct the book like a musical composition. Uh, I wanted to think of different voices coming in um, having moments when uh, the narratives would layer, but also would separate at the same time. I wanted to incorporate a chorus, partly um, because the Greek tragedies have, have been so influential to me. Homer's Iliad is a book that I have read so many times and different adaptations of it. Um, 
I was always really interested in the way that the chorus in Agamemnon, the, the, there's a chorus of old men, and they have such a distinct personality. They have been waiting for Agamemnon to come back, and Clytemnestra is making their life hell. And she is ruling this, this palace, and they don't understand a woman who acts like a man. Uh, and they're tired. And I liked that kind of personality for a chorus. Um, and I thought, in a story about memory, it would be interesting to think about what a chorus could do with arguing with characters or, or this narrative voice. But I also wanted to pay respect um, to Ethiopian storytellers, uh, maybe troubadours might be what they're called. They're called the Asmari in, in Ethiopia. And they, um, they still are around today. Um, if you go into a small bar, there is somebody with the instrument and can make up songs about everybody in, in, the, in that room. And they're entertaining and they are, um, they can be quite body, quite naughty, but funny. Um, but in the days of 35, 1935, when Mussolini was coming in, they were the ones who sang about the battles that would happen in communities. They helped people become remembered through song. They talked about heroes. They warned mothers what was going to happen to their children. They helped to inspire the men to fight. Um, and I wanted that choral voice also in the book. Uh, and I wanted to see what would happen in a, in a book that had uh, a structure with these different voices, all telling different kinds of histories, uh, what might happen in a book that is supposed to be about history if you have different voices telling their own version and sometimes even arguing about it? Yes, because the main character, Hirut, uh, there are things that she doesn't want to say and maybe she doesn't even have the words mm -hmm. uh, for her experiences or, or the vocabulary mm -hmm. for, for those, but chorus can comment on... on. Absolutely, absolutely. There's, there are several times the, the chorus will step in, Aster will say something or there will... They will, you know, there's a legend about Aster being really brave or, or stepping forward um, in, in her husband's cape to command attention. And the chorus says, actually, no, that's not what happened. That's just legend. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, yeah, they, they tell the secrets of, of, of people that would rather not. Is there a difference between the, the women's singing tradition and, and male singing tradition in Ethiopia? Uh, the Asmari are women, I've heard, um, but there's also men who do it. Uh, but it's funny when you say that, the, the first thing that comes to mind are the women that I've seen. But they, they've also been men. Okay. Yeah. Um, the oral tradition is, um, has been also, to me, very, very important. Mm -hmm. um, uh, of course, also because of, of during the Soviet occupation, uh, all the official writing was propaganda. So you really had to uh, rely on on the oral tradition um, about what had happened. And there's a difference between the understanding what is knowledge when you compare to Western and Eastern European uh, tradition in that way that in Western European countries, you rely on 
books mm -hmm. and knowledge, mm -hmm. which can flow freely in a democratic state, but not possible if uh, the nation is is under someone else's thumb, yeah. simply. Um, so, what about then? Let's move to uh, the Italian mm -hmm. uh, reception. Uh, your your book is. Has, was published in Italy, yes, right? Yes. Um, so, and what about uh, in Ethiopian? In, in because you have no, so many the, languages in, yes. in Ethiopia. The, the English version is there, and we are hoping that it will get translated into one of the languages in Ethiopia. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, if you compare the discussions around your novel in Ethiopia, or maybe also in other countries, and then uh, Italy, mm -hmm. what's the How are the Italians uh, reacting? What are they, they welcoming? Uh, well, yes, if we don't count the far right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, they they are. It has been it has been really um, it's been incredible to watch this book move through Italy. Uh, I have. Um, I've been really moved by the stories that Italians share with me, uh, their own family stories that connect to Ethiopia, uh, descendants of soldiers who were in the war. Um, they, most Italians never heard this history. They never learned it going to school. It was not in a history book unless it was one line. Mussolini went to Ethiopia and then came back. You know, that was it. Um, so they... For reading the book is an introduction uh, to their own history. And often what has happened is that they did not realize sometimes that their relative, let's say a grandfather, a great uncle, had been in the war mm -hmm. because no one talked about it. When these men came back, they never talked about it. A friend of mine said in her family, and she had just discovered after meeting me that her great uncle was in the war. Um, she said, she asked her mother, why didn't you tell me this? And her mother said, in our family, Ethiopia was a wall. He came back and we never mentioned it. And that has been the story again and again. Uh, so now there is... Um, There has been a growing interest in this history. I am not the only one that has written about this. I have really walked down a path that has been opened by people like Ijaba Shaggo and Gabriela Germandi. Um, and they, they have written about this. And then my book has come along and has joined a chorus, so to speak. Uh, and Italians... Um, are making discoveries, and sometimes it's uncomfortable. Uh, Italy never addressed their war crimes in Libya or in Ethiopia, never. And there were war crimes committed. And um, they never talked about it. They never admitted that they used mustard gas, poison gas, until 1996. Um, and so this history is still there. Um, But what I have found is that Italians are really invested in it. And I'm meeting artists, I'm meeting writers, Italian writers who are writing about it from their perspective, from their perspective as a descendant of an Italian. And that has been um, 
It's wonderful to see. I mean, but there are many conversations still to be had about this. And um, well, probably if Italians had been more interested in in their what were, what were they were doing in Ethiopia, then probably we would know more about it as well. Yeah. Because this might be, I mean, this is the Finnish edition I'm having here. Uh, and I, I'm not 100% sure, but I think this might be actually the first book about Mussolini's conquest in Ethiopia uh, available in Finnish. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in that way, uh, I, I don't, I don't think we know much simply, but if Italians had participated much more, then we probably would also know much more. I mean, think about the work uh, the Germany is is, um, doing with with coming to terms with the past. And we know quite a lot about Hitler Mm -hmm. and and, and Hitler's um, plans in in general, but not about actually Ethiopia. Absolutely. And you can imagine... Uh, when a nation, I mean, this is the thing about a collective memory. If an incident, if a war like this is not part of collective memory, there is no language to talk about racism. There's no language to talk about the misogyny that was there, the bigotries. Um, because this conversation never was never taking place in Italy. They couldn't even recognize the their racisms and that continued and and there's a direct line between the absence of that language and the way that refugees and migrants have been treated when they've landed from Libya into Italy and you know moved through Europe there's a direct line because unless someone says to you you can't say that those you know you can't say that about a group of people those group of people are as worthy as you are of respect, they should not have been killed. Um, if no one says that for a nation, it, there are all these other things that fill that space, that silence. And I think what we're seeing with the the um, recent um, election of Maloney is a direct line, because when you have Italy now a prime minister praising Mussolini, you realize they have forgotten a lot. And not just Ethiopia, but how Mussolini devastated yeah. the country, his own people. Uh, but that memory is not there. Yes, it's... Um, and and uh, as far as I know, uh, there are still Italians visiting Mussolini's grave, um, uh, which really... It's really weird. It feels weird. Uh, which is a totally uh, opposite uh, attitude or... or Think a way of thinking when you compare it to Germany, where it is very difficult to find places to worship uh, Hitler. Yeah. So there's a there's a difference, and then of course in in Russia you can find many places to worship Stalin and and look at where we are now. So there's definitely um, that we can see. Uh, 
what it means if there is no national reckoning mm-hmm. and and uh, where it actually leads yeah. um, in uh, in many ways. Um, as I mentioned earlier, there, there are really like striking similarities um, between um, the Shadow King and uh, the war in Ukraine. And I, w- I was, re- as I said, that this is uh, my uh, knowledge of... of um, the war in uh, in Ethiopia is limited to uh, to <laughs> very little, and uh, so I, I was super happy about the book, but also surprised about uh, the similarities we are seeing. Actually, we are reading about exactly the same kind mm. of events uh, today, every day from the news, and I was also surprised that Mussolini uh, Mussolini's way of thinking about the war seems to be very close to Putin's actually because <laughs> because for example uh, well we know now that uh, Russia is sending uh, men from poor territories mm. to fight in uh, Ukraine the poorer the better and that yeah. is exactly what Mussolini did mm-hmm. he sent uh, from the south in Italy the poor ones to fight and then from the north uh, there were the officers so that were more educated. Um, many of them, it might have been the first trip abroad. Yeah, it was. Um, of course, the, the, those sent to Ukraine might not think that it's abroad because they think it's Russia. But anyway, it might be actually their first trip from their home village, mm-hmm. actually. Um, and also Mussolini thought that the war would be over quickly, yeah. in a heartbeat. And yet... Uh, this David and Goliath story turned out to be something totally uh, different. Then also the fundraisings that people had all over the world, uh, rallies pro and against fascism, everything seems so that this is happening again and again and again. And the inspiration that Ethiopians gave to other anti-colonial battles all over the world and now Ukraine is doing the same inspiring even Taiwanese so this is like you know this is happening in in there's so many striking mm. uh, similarities and then camera as a weapon mm. as I already as I said that uh, I think Russia is mi- milit- militant democracy memo- and and in Ethiopia it's it was also about revenge because Mussolini wanted to revenge the what had happened how it had turned out to be less successful uh, they haven't been very successful in Ethiopia so but the camera as a weapon mm-hmm. was extremely interesting because one of the uh, characters Italian Ettore in the novel is a photographer and a soldier and uh, there's of course as you can imagine there's a difference between the official photography and then what those private uh, soldators mm-hmm. uh, were taking, what kind of pictures they were yeah. taking. And, and as, I, as far as I understood, it has been a huge uh, research project to you as well to to go through those uh, photographs. So could you tell us about that and the differences yeah. between what, what did you, what's the the private, uh, what were the private photos like? Mm. Um, the uh, Mussolini, before he invaded Ethiopia, needed to create a narrative of 
Italians as being one way and then Africans being another way, East Africans, Ethiopians. And so before the invasion, um, there were photojournalists and reporters that were going throughout Ethiopia, East Africa, Eritrea, and, and Somalia, taking photographs uh, of people in front of their homes, uh, which were huts often, people walking their livestock, people farming, people cooking, people, you know, and these images would go back to newspapers. And the newspapers would say, look how primitive these people are. Look how uncivilized they are. They really need the helping hand of the Italians. We need to go and civilize them. There was that happening. On the other side, Mussolini was creating through photographs and often photographs of him, the ideal fascist man. Uh, how to wear your uniform in a certain way how to stand when you are taking a photograph, always hand folded, legs slightly apart, moving from side to side. He would often have um, photographs with his profile. If you smoked a cigarette, then that cigarette is not like here, it's here, hanging from the side. And it was so specific. And if, as I was looking through soldiers' photographs, things that they might send back home, you could see these patterns. They were mimicking this ideal, ideal masculinity. Um, and so there were these sets of photographs that were professional. And they were there to construct a kind of narrative for the fascists. But I was very interested in the fact that soldiers took their cameras to war. Mussolini understood that the camera was a weapon also. You send it in before the invasion. But yet these soldiers also took their cameras. And I wondered what was the difference between what they took and what photojournalists took. Um, what I realized quite early on is that the soldiers who were, were making their photographs, uh, they, were, they were photographing quotidian life, daily life, going to the market, sitting in front of their tents, playing cards, going near the water and relaxing. Um, these were ordinary, ordinary photographs of young men far from home who were developing friendships with each other in a place that they may never see again. They were never going to be that far from home probably again. Like you said, they were the poorest of the people, they were from the southern parts of Italy. Um, I could see those daily images and begin to understand a little bit about them. Uh, but they were also taking photographs of Ethiopians, East Africans, people they encountered. And they were also taking photographs of women, women and, and girls, and often exploitative. They were mimicking whatever um, images that, that they may have seen from different magazines as, as young men in Italy. They were mimicking this in Ethiopia. Part of the reason that they were doing that was that Mussolini, again, understanding the power of this image, um, 
would had the the military recruitment pamphlets made with photographs of Ethiopian women and girls. And so what the pamphlets would say is, um, enlist in the war, you will have an African adventure, you will get land, and look what else you get. And you can practice on these women or girls, whatever you want to do before you go home and get married. So join. And they did. They marched into Ethiopia singing um, quite brutal, vulgar songs about what they would do. But it was always put to a military march. And these were songs um, that are still sung in, in some spaces now in Italy, um, quite racist. So this became, um, this became a, another reason to fight. Like you were saying, nobody expected that this war would drag on as we're seeing now uh, in Ukraine. And they really, women were going to be the trophies in addition to land. And all of it was going to be um, developed, this idea, through photographs. Um, it's interesting that you were saying also that, uh, you know, in Ukraine, there's still this love, or not Ukraine, in Russia, there's still this love of, of Stalin. Um, I found, I've been collecting photographs uh, taken by Italian soldiers. I'm not really interested in the photojournalist work, um, but those those intimate private photographs I'm interested in. And I would look through, um, I would go and travel across Italy, going to flea markets, trying to find these things, going to antique stores, trying to find things. Um, every flea market, Every flea market would have a fascist table. And not just as a joke, you know, it was there. And I would just stand sometimes just at the entrance and look for Mussolini. And then I would find his head and I would go right there. And that was usually the table that was the fascist table. Uh, and I would ask them if they had photographs dealing with the colonial era. And sometimes I made them very uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> I could see them watching me as I'm walking up and I could see their face saying, please don't come here. <laughs> don't come. <laughs> um, but always there's a fascist table and uh, it, I'm sure there's more now, but it, it just ha that history has not died away. Uh, that's uh, of course. Uh, it's uh, for an author. It's very good that uh, you could find so many fascist tables. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but but again, it's um, it's pretty much impossible to think uh, uh, Germany having a Hitler's oh I <laughs> Hitler know booth. Uh, if you if you go to Berlin, um, but then again in in Russia, it's it's different again. Um, I wanted to ask you about the languages because you write in English mm. but your characters are not I mean their native language is not English so did you find uh, or who's um, or which language do you uh, do you hear uh, when you write about them oh or did you have to make yeah. like you know did you find I'm sure there are many 
expressions that you cannot translate into English. So what do you do with them? Yeah, some of them I just, there's just no, no way to translate them. And also it didn't write well in English. So I would just have to, there's an expression that uh, in, in, in Ethiopian Amharic, it's, uh, it's so simple. I mean, for it's, it's a, when somebody does something and either you, you're shocked by it or you don't like it, you're saying, Day, like, oh my gosh. But it doesn't have the same, it's not the same thing. It's, and I couldn't write that because I don't even know how to spell it in English. And you need a tone, a tone of saying, what? And I just had, I just, you know, there were things that couldn't translate and I couldn't write them down because it just doesn't work in English. But what I wanted to do, uh, I was hearing the English that I heard. I, I have, my schooling has been in English. Um, and so English was very natural for me to, to use. But because there is this other language that has been such a part of my life, what I... I realized was that the rhythms of that language were seeping in. And I wanted to, um, I wanted to mimic that even in, yeah. in the English writing. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that makes sense because I was thinking because you have uh, absolutely wonderful flow in, okay. in, in the novel and it's really like, um, and I was thinking that is there something that comes from some other language than English? Because uh, I can tell you that also Finnish translation is extremely good. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, good. Yeah, because there is this <laughs> kind of flow that I cannot actually, you know, really detect where does it actually come from or where, where are the uh, origins of it somehow. And these are, I wanted also to, hmm. to ask about this um, because I'm somehow, I'm quite often struggling because I write in Finnish and I don't have too many Finnish characters in my work at all. So when you think about how Finns talk and how Estonians oh. talk and how people address each other in different cultures, then you're writing a dialogue and then you are like, you know, okay. How am I going to make this sound beautiful? <laughs> that was hard. Yeah, it is sometimes it is very and and maybe I don't know what about symbols and metaphors? Um do you mix yeah. them like you know because I'm sure that there are pretty many yes. symbols that and I, I don't have them. I can't even think right now um because I've had Ethiopians read the book in English and say how did you capture this thing? Um, at the same time, I read so much poetry. Um, it's just it. I think that the 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 way that that poets use language is something that that has seeped into my own work. Um, the way that Homer or the Greeks would describe color or movement. Those are things that I would pick up. There's a cadence to that kind of language that I think um, it, it, there's a rhythm that's not in standard English that we get when we read that 
when we read poets or when we when I read uh, some of the Greeks, and it's very similar to me to the way that that um, either Amharic or sounds or someone from Ethiopia who's speaking English with an Amharic or an accent. Um, and I wanted to emulate that in the book, but there was also something else that I wanted to do with language, and particularly um, in moments when the book is most violent. Uh, I wanted to think about how much weight can be placed on a sentence so that if that sentence is conveying something really brutal, can the words help cushion some of that violence? Can you, can you make a pocket of, 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 of peace in language when actually the thing that's being described is quite brutal? Uh, and so that was always something that I was working towards with this, with layering, um, layering the language with metaphor, with different imagery, uh, in the way some, that I think poets uh, that I have really loved um, have done. Uh, indeed, and, and uh, let me assure you, language is extremely beautiful in, in Shadow, Shadow King. And I also think that, I know that actually, uh, well, I don't know in Norway, but there was a recent uh, study about people reading less news this year because the world is so wow. disturbing. And actually Finland was the only one where we read more news. Oh. <laughs> I don't know what it tells about Finns, but in a way that we are more, more than ever uh, happy with our national broadcasting company and, and news haven't ever been this popular. Um, but everybody else is, 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 is um, they're depressed with news and that r results in a situation where people actually want to avoid news. Yeah. Um, but I think this is, this is exactly where literature can step in. Absolutely. Because no matter how horrible things you write about, then actually the lang beauty of the language uh, makes the difference. And it makes you also kind of, um, I don't know what's the word, like, uh, it would be weird to say, well, you, it makes... <laughs> <laughs> it makes it easier to welcome horrible events, but yes. I, I mean that's a, that's a bad expression. Maybe in a way that uh, you, it gives also protection. Yes, absolutely. And I think we are we are all built that way. We have these these protections in us that we will sometimes call imagination. We will sometimes. Uh, Maybe it's a memory that might come in, but the brain helps us. It's, we are wired that way. Uh, and it is a mercy that all of us are given uh, that in our most difficult moments, something steps in that is already inside of us and helps to cushion the blow. Um, and I wanted language to do that here. I wanted to recognize this thing. And part of that recognition came from writing the first novel, which was uh, which is set in Ethiopia in the 1970s during a revolution 
uh, I interviewed or spoke to people who were revolutionaries at that time, people who had been imprisoned by the military regime, and again and again they would tell me of these moments when something within them would comfort them in a way that was completely surprising and unexpected. Um, that for me is the, the task of language. That is what we do. It's as writers, we both expose, but also cushion in one way or another. Uh, and I think that that, um, yeah, I wanted that partly for me as I was writing some of these really difficult moments. I needed that and partly for, for the reader, but also for my characters. I didn't want them to go through something without, without some, some level of comfort. Um, it was in the beginning of November, I think, when Ethiopia and the Cray forces signed a truce treaty. Mm. Um, after, I think, the Civil War took like two years, so, um, and left so many deaths, famine, displaced people. Um, the big question in the novel is also, when does the war actually end? because it doesn't end with the uh, declarations of peace. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what, what it, the truth yeah. means now in Ethiopia. And how, how do you see now the, well, two big questions. How do you see the future of Ethiopia? And, <laughs> and, uh, and when does the war end? Well, I have to say... I would uh, like to say, I, that's a, I, I don't have a good answer to, to that. That's why I'm asking yeah. you, because I might say never. Yeah. And that's uh, yeah. a very depressing answer. Yeah. It, um, I don't know what the future holds. I don't know what will happen. It has been absolutely devastating and catastrophic uh, for so many people I know. Um, in Tigray, in Amhara, in the Afar regions, in Oromia, and it's been absolutely, absolutely, absolutely shattering. Um, there is a peace treaty that has been signed, and I think that there is, for the most part, a collective sigh of relief. Um, I don't think that peace is possible until there's justice. I think that in any, any general situation, um, not just Ethiopia, that you cannot have peace until you have justice. Mm -hmm. I hope that we are on the way towards justice, but what justice means also is a reckoning. It means an unearthing of pa painful memories, an unearthing of incidents that maybe some people are still mourning and would rather not talk about. Um, this is a war that is layered on top of other wars, on top of other memories, on top of other deaths and other catastrophes. And for justice to really happen and for peace to stick, it's going to take an unearthing of so much. Um, I hope it happens because the people have suffered enough. It is enough. I think Unfortunately, it's about time to wrap 
wrap it up, even though actually I would <laughs> we never got to the title, like the oh, woman in the face of the war. Yeah. Uh, but um but um there is a shadow king. Uh, yes. But you know, I hope that we'll have another conversation about those women. <laughs> Otherwise, you just have to read about uh, the ladies uh, in the in the novel. I do hope you read it, and you definitely will enjoy it as much as I did. Thank you so much, Sophie. Thank you. Thank you all. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast from the House of Literature in Oslo, presenting adapted versions of lectures and conversations featuring international writers and thinkers. You can find more episodes and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud and our website. The music is by Apotek. <laughs>